welcome to a very special Friday happy hour on a very special Friday on the American Shoreline, the last day before hurricane season starts, Peter. Yep, 2019 hurricane season kicks off tomorrow, and and on the happy hour today, we get to hear from Director Ken Graham of the National Hurricane Center, and then afterward, we're going to talk about what we've heard, talk about some other issues around the American shoreline, but let's jump in and listen to Ken Graham. Thank you for holding us, Ken. Good morning, Director Graham. How are you this morning? I'm doing wonderful. How are you all? Very well. Doing very good. Director Graham, tomorrow, of course, June 1st, the beginning of the hurricane season, and the kickoff uh, of a very important uh, part of the year for people on the American shoreline. Uh, welcome to the Friday Happy Hour, our special show on Friday on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Oh, this is great. So, yeah, I mean, kicking off the hurricane season, it's, um, you know, another one upon us. It seems like we can't stop the calendar, right? I mean, it's just a, it's another season upon us. So, yeah, today today's... Uh, all about getting ready and getting everybody prepared for the next one. Well, Ken, uh, we, we had the pleasure of speaking with you several months ago uh, after the end of uh, last season, and uh, you were uh, already hard at work uh, improving your uh, materials and working with sociologists and doing all sorts of interesting stuff. So how are you feeling going into this, and uh, what, what, what changes have you made and improvements have you made to the National Hurricane Center? I'll tell you, we, we do have those new tools. I mean, it's, it's really one of these things that we're seeing success, you know, having social and behavioral scientists right along our side as we, we look at all of our products. And in the future, we're going to look at the, we're going to look at our website. We're looking at the cone. And, and, and that's based on success that we've had with the storm surge watch and warning, the, the potential um, inundation mapping. Social scientists helped us create all that. And we're seeing some success. It's, you know, historically, the storm surge fatalities has been half of the fatalities in tropical systems, and you know, and we're, we're, we're looks like we're on track to, to reducing those, which is really where we want to be. But I, I definitely want to talk about about this as an important point that uh, the last three years, 83 percent of the fatalities in, in the tropical systems has been from inland flooding, um, over half of those in cars. So we, we want to have more conversations about the dangers of water, and in the in the end, 90 percent of fatalities historically in tropical systems is the water. But when we close our eyes, a lot of people see the wind. So that's a narrative uh, that we're continuing to focus on and, and try to get that information out. You know, uh, Director Graham, we noticed recently in your remarks that you talked about the the uh, the fact that the public underestimates category the category system. I believe your comments were that uh, in the last ten years, Category One hurricanes uh, was at a hundred and five billion dollars in damages. Uh, extensive numbers of deaths. It's really this Saffir-Simpson scale that that can confuse the public, and I know we all relax when we see Category 1, but uh, of course Hurricane Florence last year was a Category 1. Talk to us about the Saffir-Simpson scale and and how this storm surge uh, analysis you're doing is coming into play in your forecasts and your advisories to the public. Yeah, we made such an effort to try to separate these these impacts from the categories. And, and like you said, it's, you know, the, the Saffir Simpson scale is, is just the wind. You know, we're looking at category ones over the over the years. Yeah, you're right with the stats. Over 170 fatalities, um, around $103, $105 billion for the damage from, from cat ones. There's no such thing as just a cat one or just a tropical storm. It's, a, it's about the impact. So we've worked so hard to be able to separate those those risks and the impacts from the Saffir Simpson scale. But here's something to consider that's interesting is, you know, in a Florence situation, when you go from a four to a one, there's a tendency to relax a little, but that that's just the wind coming down. The, the storm grew, it got bigger, um, still a slow storm. So the rain forecast, the storm surge forecast didn't change. So um, that's when the scale comes down. With a Michael situation, when the scale is going up, there, there's an increased focus. So the scale actually has utility in the storms that are um, strengthening versus weakening. So that, that's all part of this whole behavioral and social science study that we're going to try to look at and see if there's different ways to communicate. Great. It makes a lot of sense. And as I understand, last year you were starting to work with a new tool using Twitter. Were you advising the public about storm surge zones? Are we going to see that this year in the National Hurricane Center's uh, storm predictions process? Oh, social media has just been a game changer, I think, for everybody. It's, 
you know, it's how a, a lot of people are getting the information. I mean, I, I have three teenagers. That, that's what they're glued to. Um, so we're, gonna, we're, we're using Twitter. We're using Facebook. We're trying to do broadcasts. On, on, on Facebook Live, just to not just give the storm information, but meet the people behind the scenes do, doing the forecast. Meet us, talk to us. We're just, you know, a lot of times we're in the in the path as well, getting ourselves um, ready for these storms. So I think the usage of social media is, is just taken off incredibly. So it, it's all about uh, getting information out in multiple ways, and uh, we, we definitely want to be in, involved with that. It, it's a great re- way to reach people. And in looking ahead it, uh, at, at the use of technology and the use of uh, uh, different ways to communicate, I think uh, this notion of bringing in the sociologists, if I recall, you have two or three on staff who advise you on the kind of information uh, and the manner in which it's presented in order to motivate the public to act at the right time. Uh, that's got to be a very complicated uh, addition to the National Hurricane Center uh, agenda. Can you tell us a little bit about the discussions with your sociologists and what you're learning from them? Yeah, it's, an, it's incredible because if you, if you look at the storm surge watch and warning, um, you know, social scientists and behavioral scientists were right on, right on our side the entire time we developed those. So, you know, a meteorologist creating those pro- products might look different than a sociologist creating the, the, the product because, you know, we, we don't want to create something that's made for a meteorologist. So it has to be understood, every color, every line, at where you put uh, the, the color table signifying the different levels of storm surge, all that is, is a social science uh, challenge. So I, I think it's a huge addition to what we do, and it, it's a narrative thing. If you think about uh, the way we talk, is you know, every single word matters, and, and having uh, key messages is another new product that we've been we've been issuing for the last couple of years. What are the most important things that we need to know about this hurricane? So, if you think about a one percent chance of uh, of flooding, it's, it it doesn't sound like much. I'm in a one percent area. That's pretty low number. If you change that to one in one hundred chance, that still seems like the same number. That that's pretty low. But if I say twenty six percent chance in your thirty year mortgage. That's got some attention. Wow. See, it's about the narrative. All those are the same thing, by the way. Um, so, so they have to be along the side of us because a perfect forecast is fine, but if it's not understood and actionable, then then we lose that last mile. Well, on on behalf of the American public, I'll say I appreciate that. I do think this probability language is very difficult for people. I hated it when I was in school. Totally. <laughs> the one in a hundred chance language, absolutely, uh, for most people means I don't need to worry about it. Uh, but 26% chance of in, in, during your mortgage is something that, that registers your attention. It. It, yeah, that'll, yeah, that'll catch your mind. Well, the other thing... Well, you'll hit, like this. Oh, go you'll, ahead, You'll Ken. like this. One, one of the social science pro- projects that, that we have going on is called the Numerics Project. They are literally looking at the public's perception and understanding of probabilistic forecasts. And I can't wait to get the data and share with you all and share with everybody because I think it's going to give us a better understanding of how people really are interpreting those probabilities. That's very interesting, Ken. And the other thing I would, I would, I'm curious to learn about, and I'm sure you're studying, is the kind of the temporal aspect of the way social media has changed the way that we follow these storms. You know. When a disaster is actually happening, there's all of these social media posts going out, and it can be, just by way that the news feed orients, it can be a little confusing what's happening when, and I'm, I'm curious to know if you have any advice to the public or uh, what you are doing internally to uh, ensure that uh, old information that might be even 24 hours or 48 hours old, but that it, it could dramatically change. Uh, someone's planning how you're how you're working to funnel people to the more uh, you know current and accurate information. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting phenomenon. It's actually there's a term for it. I didn't even learn about this till maybe six months ago. It's called anchoring, and it's 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 a it's a tendency to anchor on the first piece of information that you get. So in other words, you know, in Hurricane Michael, you know, in, in interviewing some people and basically said, well, I, I looked a couple days ago and it didn't look that bad. So it's it's something that everybody has to realize that forecast changes. I mean, we're still working to improve the intensity forecast. It's still a huge challenge to get the intensity correct. So the forecast does change. So that, that's one factor. And, and the other one that's important, too, is, you know, these timelines are, are different for every storm. I mean, look at Irma and Florence. I mean, Florence, we watched 
as a wave come off Africa, make, make you know, development all the way across the Atlantic. You had a week, you know, 10 Very days slow. plus to look at that. But how about Michael? How about three days notice before Cat 5? Here's a reminder. Only four Category 5s have ever hit this country. Every single one of them was a tropical storm three days out. They're all rapid intensification situations. Things wow. could change. So getting the latest information is, is critical. That's the fact of the day. I did not realize. I did know that we've had four Cat 5 strikes. I did not realize they were all quick developing storms. That's pretty scary uh, phenomenon because of the intensity of those things. Yeah, it is. And, and that's why it's another reminder. And, and so what do we do with that information? And it's something that that I know I've tried to stress in the last couple months in, in my travel. So, you know, we practice our business, our, you know, uh, family planning. We, we talk about how to get ready for a hurricane. Usually we practice something with five to seven days in mind. I, I really encourage everybody listening to, to let's, let's take that five to seven day timeline. Let's practice it in two or three days because I think stressing and breaking that plan is how we make it better. And I think it could keep people safe. Got to be prepared. Uh, let's talk about the crystal ball uh, exercise, which is the National Hurricane Center's annual a projection of the season. I believe it, it's described as a, a an average year in the Atlantic this year. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your projection of the number of storms? And tell us, uh, if you can, uh, what factors are you seeing environmentally, and I mean that in the broadest way, uh, that's driving the projection this year? You know, we, we always look at, you know, the, the global patterns. It looks at uh, the, you know, the temperature of the oceans is looking at this whole El Nino, La Nina phenomenon, and all these global factors come into play when it when it comes to that hurricane forecast. I mean, in, in El Nino year, you, you think about something in the middle of the Pacific Ocean right. that could that could impact things in the Atlantic, and it, and it does because you, what happens is the winds shift in the ap- atmosphere, and you actually get more shear, and it hurts the hurricane in the Atlantic. But here's here's something that's so critical. You know, that, that those forecasts are, are not a forecast for landfall. Um, so everybody has to prepare as if you're going to be hit. 1992, hardly any storms, big El Nino year, but Hurricane Andrew hit as a Category 5 in Florida and went on to, to impact uh, Louisiana. Look, if there's one storm on Earth, if it impacts you, then it's a busy season. Right. And the, the worst worst year it'll be if, you get, if you're unlucky with, 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 with one of those. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've noticed lately, and uh, these are, again, on, the, on a global scale here, we're seeing some very unusually high temperatures up in Alaska right now and up in the Arctic over in, uh, in Russia uh, that are really astonishing, something like 20 degrees above normal. This, this is sort of a striking uh, anomaly. Um, are, are those Arctic conditions uh, likely to have an effect on uh, the hurricane season? Or is that too remote? You know, it's, it, yeah, no, it's a, good, it's a good question. It's interesting with, with these. You know, you see, you see these, these patterns ac- across the globe and, you know, you get warmer uh, temperatures than than expected in some areas. It's, it's all about that global balance. It's it's and it's it's not just that parameter. It, it's interesting when you look at what impacts you know a hurricane from developing, not developing, to becoming strong or not strong. You know, it's not just the ocean temperatures. It literally is the atmospheric winds. It's it's about the shear. It's about what's the depth of those those temperatures as well right when you have a hurricane there's something called upwelling yeah and that could be the next big leap when it comes to this intensification forecast because when we measure those temperatures we're mainly looking at the surface but when you stir things up what's going on 400 feet below uh, the the surface of the water you stir up cold water you stir up warm water there's something to be said with that and getting that information into the model so it's just a reminder there's a lot of factors that go into development i've seen hurricanes go into the warmest part of the Gulf of Mexico and weaken because of some dry air that got caught up in there. So it's a, it's a good yeah. reminder. It's hard to correlate, to be honest with you, over time. It's hard to correlate any, anything like that to, to what can happen in the season. Very interesting and quite true. There could not be a more complex uh, uh, con- set of conditions. Atmospherics? To to... I mean, come on. It's very complicated. So many things. It's a good thing we have supercomputers. Yeah. Uh, but Director Graham, in, in the evaluation of the season or in the models uh, and in the projection process, is there a new kind of information that's different uh, in the last couple of years that you're building in? I, need the, I know these deeper... Uh, uh, water temperatures is certainly one thing I've been hearing about. Uh, 
can you tell us a little bit about how the uh, the projections are advancing? Uh, and I think it really relates to this issue of intensification, which is such a difficult thing to get a handle on. Yeah, I think I think we're looking at that that modeling. I think we're you know a lot of it is to do with the observations. I think we can if we can get more of the observations, accurate information that that we can get into that that model. I think you're going to see the level of accuracy um, increase with time. So I think that's a a big part of it. A big part of the conversation going into the future is like a day like today. We you know we're kicking off hurricane season. I'm looking out the door here. I got um, more interviews to do today. So definitely uh, you know I appreciate this. We we got to keep these conversations up. I hope this is, isn't the last conversation with you all but um, you know I think I think when you think about preparedness and the models uh, you know I keep repeating this but you know even a perfect forecast doesn't do much good um, if we don't have that that risk analysis if we, if we don't have the the impacts that, that we can communicate that's the last mile and, and we're spending a lot of time on that today as we kick off the season Ken thank you very much for being back on the American Shoreline podcast network and we would uh, of course love to have you back after the season and see how it went thank you so much uh, for talking to our listeners today absolutely thanks for what you all do too it is appreciated well Peter what a treat it was to have Ken Graham on Friday happy hour uh, what do you say we have a couple rounds and talk about this thing yeah, you know, uh, Ken has been came on at the end of the last hurricane season, really right. when ASPN just started, when we started in September. <laughs> That's right. He was one of our early guests and uh, let us know, let me know anyway that uh, we there's a real there's a real audience out there to, to for coastal discussion, and uh, Ken certainly recognizes that. And uh, yeah, it's very cool to have him on. Yeah, especially in the off season because uh, obviously his job is not just a seasonal uh, job. He's got a lot of work to do in the off season, and they have been doing a lot of work this off season. So we got to catch up with him on uh, some of these products, what he calls products that they put out, which are of course all of the the visual aids, the stuff that gets shared online, and really informs the American public about the season and also specific storms and what they need to do and where the risks are. Uh, and of yeah. course, in what we do on on Coastal News Today and ASPN, where we talk about kind of the broader consequences of the season, this is a big deal. Yeah, I what I what I'm hearing from them uh, going back last year to our conversation with Ken, and and then again this year is two things. Uh, broadly speaking, number one is they know that the Saffir Simpson scale is limited in how it communicates risk to the public, because as he said in the interview, look, that's a wind scale uh, system, right? And he's not saying that they're going to get rid of it. Obviously, that is not going to happen. I think everyone should know that we're not trying to develop a new system here, but they're trying to add to it. And and he talked about it. He said two things that struck me about the limitations on Saffir Simpson. Number one was category one storms, which tend to be the thing people ignore and have a party. You know, if you're hearing, oh, this is category one, right. so let's have a hurricane we're ride party. That baby out. Yeah, we're going to get some beer and we're going to have a party. Yeah. That kind of attitude. Uh, he said in the last 10 years, 175 deaths at $103 billion worth of damage were category one storms in the last 10 years. They're big time Yep, because it ignores surge and rain. And he said in the deaths were primarily on the inland from water and car yeah. drownings. I didn't know that. That was striking yeah. to hear. You know, it, it reminds me actually of, uh, the Thomas fire in, in Ohio. Really? Uh, but, uh, yeah. Uh, I believe there were a firefighter perished in that fire, but uh, one civilian died and uh, that person was in a car accident trying to flee. She had waited too long and the smoke and, the, and you know, it's the same thing in, yeah. in a hurricane. If you wait too long, you try to get out uh, yeah. and your the roads are compromised and you can't see, you know, visibility is low, you know, the likelihood of a, of a car accident or in a low water situation getting washed away is way higher. Indeed. And, and uh, you know, that's what he's trying to talk about. That's a big issue for the Hurricane Center with these sociologists. How do you get people to act at the right time? Uh, you know, this is this is a classic problem, right? The crying wolf problem. If you 
provide the warning too soon and it doesn't actually turn out to be what you thought it was going to be, then people ignore you in the future. They're, they're in a very tenuous position when they're tracking these storms as unpredictable as they can be. Totally. That when do you call, when do you make the call? I mean, it's a really tough decision. It is. And it, it, it this gets at like, you know, the, the DEFCOM levels in the military and kind of the psychology behind that, or even the terrorism watch levels back in post 9-11 world. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. The government wants to raise awareness wants to raise alert levels um but as we we all remember you know it being if you got to fly the extra security precautions are kind of more of a pain right you know you can rest on your laurels uh but you know ken's got his work cut out for him because we need to trust this and as he pointed out talking about the probabilities i thought that part of the discussion was interesting because if you say you know one percent chance that doesn't raise your uh, awareness much but if you think about it in terms of you know there's a 25 percent chance that while i am paying off this property right i'm going to be facing this problem yeah that's, that's significant yeah that you know what that the probability stuff has never worked for me the one in 100 storm and they do this in in engineering design on beach restoration project we're designing for a 25 year storm a 50 year storm a hundred year design storm you know 500 year all of this stuff this language does not it doesn't work it's not intuitively clear uh it's if if somebody said i've got a hundred bucks and i'm going to grab a dollar from you i'm going to take one percent i'd be like yeah okay whatever you know i mean i'm not going to you know i'm not going to fall on my sword over that it's one dollar out of a hundred it's one percent it doesn't convey and i think uh, Ken is uh, talking about this when he's when he's getting involved with these uh, these sociologists and these communicators that are now on his staff who are trying to work with the Hurricane Center on how to convey the risk and and the action that people should be taking, and uh, you know that's okay. an, that's a tough deal. So here's here's the kind of the deeper context of it. Obviously, Ken Ken's principal job here is to save lives. And to save property uh, by helping people prepare and plan, um, but there's a broader thing that happens, uh, which is the the you know these seasons come year after year after year after year, and yeah. we do get used to these storms. I'll tell you, if you go to the Carolina coast or the Florida coast or the Texas coast, people know that hurricanes are coming, yeah. and yet we're developing, we're building more. We're building stronger shore and higher shore, but we continue to do it. We're kind of unfazed, uh, which means that more people are going to be in the line of fire of these bad boys. Yeah. And and knowing how to uh, get out of Dodge is increasingly important, <laughs> how to manage the problem. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say that the known risk of the Atlantic hurricane season on the Atlantic seaboard from New York to Brownsville, Texas, has really changed how we've developed. I mean, it... it it's hard to say that that's happened uh, because I think you're right. Uh, we continue to build things. We continue to put them in areas that we know uh, are going to be hit at some point. It's the it, it's it's the kind of the it's not if it's when thing you know. But everybody's playing roulette. That's how I look at it. We're all playing roulette. There was a a story, the core logic story on Coastal News today yesterday that talked yeah. about how much property is in danger of storm surge flooding. Uh, so, you know, on on Coastal News Today, take a look at this story. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. What they say is that there are 7.3 million homes that are in at risk from hurricane storm surge. And it that property is worth, get this, $1.8 trillion. Now, of course, that's because it, they followed the entire shoreline, right? Uh, and we know in any hurricane season, only a small percentage of that is going to be impacted by a hurricane directly. Right. And that's why I look at it as roulette. I mean, if you're totally. at the house, you're like, well, yeah, I know it can happen. It's not going to happen here, right? We all do that. It's not going to happen to me. And then when it does, people say, you know, I just never thought this would happen to me. And you're like, why either, didn't you think it would happen? Either that or, you know, you've always got those old timers out there. It's like, oh, yeah, this happened 20 years ago. Right. And it's just a part of life. That's I mean, right. the other side There's of it, that, like in California, earthquakes are a part of life. It's it, you never know when one's going to strike. It could happen at any moment. Knock on wood here, California. Right. But, um, you know, there is a degree of just being a, a human on Earth uh, where you live, your environment that surrounds you. Look at what's going on with the Mississippi River right now. Yeah. Uh, look at what the tornadoes across America. Uh 
these the risks that we that we have around us from our environment are definitely real uh but we definitely you know if if you live in florida and mm-hmm. you go through i don't know let's just say uh five a, a serious storm five days of, of just incredible weather but you know the rest of the time you're enjoying kind of bluebird yeah. days and beach days yeah it's easy you can you can see why people forget <laughs> yeah uh you know and let it let it go yeah. right uh well it, it is interesting to mention that the mississippi I've, i haven't heard anybody saying people in in kansas need to move the hell out of kansas uh there's the tornadoes and the flooding in oklahoma and arkansas right now on the arkansas river uh, the upper Midwest uh, has gone through incredible historic flooding this year, y'all. Now, on the American Shoreline podcast, we're always looking out offshore or out the coast, looking out to the ocean and what we're covering. But inside the United States, in the great mid-America, the breadbasket of the world kind of thing, uh, historic flooding in the upper Midwest. And, and I almost posted this yesterday on Coastal News Today. There's a, If you look at corn futures which are contracts to buy corn in the future. The prices have gone up substantially for corn and soybeans because they know that the supply of those commodities is not going to be what it should be in the fall. So there's a huge run-up in uh, in commodity prices on the Chicago Board of Trade right now. And I read, and I was looking at these ag uh, reports, the amount of land that is not getting planted right now is about between 25 and 35 percent of the land base in the in, in the of, of crop production is not being planted and they can't because the damn soil is underwater or it's too damn wet right and and, and you know the, i only mention that because the risks that we're talking about the environmental risks that you're talking about are not unique to the shoreline we're talking about rivers we're talking about the the tornado outbreak that's been going on here in the last week the highest number of tornadoes in a 13-day period ever i think it's more than 300 and of course out in california you got the earthquake so where is it risk-free really nowhere and uh but we uh obviously we we want to protect our property we need to protect our infrastructure we need to have infrastructure that can uh adapt and survive this is one of the reasons why peter uh you know, we've been really interested in what's going on in Louisiana with these spillways. Speaking of this flooding, wow. all that water is coming down to the American shoreline. Yeah. To a very important American shoreline, Ground Zero. I believe you posted uh, an article, if I'm not mistaken, recently about uh, just this subject matter. Yeah, a bunch. Uh, and a bunch. And we're going to be following. We This is so interesting because, uh, of course, Louisiana shoreline battling land loss, battling sea level rise battling the hurricane season uh hopefully not but uh and they're they're on the shoreline there uh they've been hit before uh and in addition to this they've got this wild river the mississippi our greatest drainage yeah pouring through the middle of town yeah and uh the way that they've channelized that so that the sediment and stuff just kind of drops off the continental shelf yeah uh, there's a it seems like there and, and now we have we're gonna be opening some of these spillways It seems like it's not only an opportunity uh, To see if this old infrastructure works and if the yeah. political system can manage this uh, Which will this will require flooding out some uh, farms and stuff about 25,000 acres We're talking about the Morganza spillway opening right. which is planned to occur. I believe on Sunday this weekend the Army Corps of Engineers has made it clear that this has got to happen tomorrow, now. the it's, first day of hurricane season. Is that right? They're opening it tomorrow. I believe so. The Morganza Spillway is a is only been open twice in the past. The last time was in 2011, and it had been decades before that. So, this is a rare occurrence. The river levels on the Lower Mississippi are really high, and all of that water that's in Oklahoma and Kansas and the Upper Midwest has not all cleared. They think they're going to be at flood stage through the next month. But anyway, the Morganza Spillway opening uh, is going to flood about 25,000 acres of downstream private property. They're mostly farmland, thankfully. There's not a lot of development in there. But it's all, all we're talking about here is risk management and, and how should we respond to risk. And I, I think it's perfectly appropriate to put the hurricane risk in the context of Midwest flooding and California fires and earthquakes and all the rest because – it, I tell you what, there's a bias against people who live on the coast. They're like, man, you people are stupid. You got to just get the hell out of there. Why are you living there? That attitude is almost never applied 
in Kansas. I don't ever hear anybody going, well, those farmers just ought to get the hell away from the Illinois River or the city of Tulsa ought to just move back from the Arkansas River, which is at historic flood stages right now. We don't do that to people in the inland, but we do do that on the to people on the coast. Well, and it is unfair. top story right now on Coastal News Today is a story about managed retreat in California. Uh and uh, earlier this week yeah. on NPR, there was uh, on, not excuse me, not NPR on public uh, television, uh, the news show in the yeah. evening, whatever yeah, it's yeah. called. Yeah. Uh, they did a really the good, news hour, the news hour. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, great program. And they did a, a thing about a, a commute relocating people from flood areas. Um, so it, it does. And of course, in, in we know that in uh, Louisiana right now, they are confronting this very problem on, on co- in coastal areas. It does seem like uh, if you really want to mitigate risk, uh, you're confronted between two choices. One choice is that you don't, you're just not going to be in right. the risky area. Get the hell out. And the other op- option is that you're going to engineer. You're going to build a fort. You're going to build a fort. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to engineer your way so that you can manage the risk that way. Yeah. That, it seems like that's those are the two options. Yeah, and you know, well, that down there in uh, in in, in uh, Louisiana, Simone Malaz's organization, Restore or Retreat. Their thing is, yeah, we're going to reduce the risk. We're going to restore the estuary, and we're going to restore the barrier island. So there's this fortification notion with nature, and then there's the build concrete walls, that kind of thing. In fact, I think one of the things that, uh, this is also a story on Coastal News Today, you can find it under property, uh, but the story about the fortification design of, of housing along the American shoreline. And builders are hitting this higher standard. This is a standard called the Fortify Standard. Right. Uh, a building design, which is much more storm worthy. And there's another great story about it out of Charleston, South Carolina, about the guys who raise houses who said, you know, we used to do one or two of these a year. Now we're doing 10 or 15. We have we have a backlog. People are raising their houses because of storm surge flood risk. That's kind of the technical response that you're talking about. You can stay there and be better at being there. Build a bigger wall, build something, fix the house, make it stronger. And then there's the get the hell out of the way attitude. Uh, which you know, Rob Young generally uh, the guy, Doctor Doctor, right? Rob, Rob, Rob Young. No, yeah, I think you're Center right. for Developed Shorelines. Right. Yeah. Great interview with Rob on ASBN. You can go right. back and listen to the Center for Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina University. Uh, really talks about the policy implications of that first option you mentioned, which is the get the hell out of the way option. And uh, there are some there's some good reason to think about it that way. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately here, uh, we look at it and the American shoreline is a beautiful place. It's a dynamic place. It's it's always been a place where uh, I think the benefits outweigh the cost. If you really look at it, if you're living in Florida, if you're living on anywhere on the American shoreline, look at the interview with my father. Yeah, uh, he's on a on an eroding shoreline, a cliff face eroding shoreline. And he doesn't mind. I mean, the, there's a risk there, but he's gonna he's managing it with this grass, this vetiver grass. Uh, he's gonna keep his eye on it. Yeah. Uh, but at this point in time, he's like, "Hey, it's beautiful uh, most of the time here in Hawaii, and yeah. I'm doing I, I like it." That's the calculation I think it's made every day on the American shoreline is, and, and I call it the time frame of reference issue. It it. People who are buying on the shoreline are typically looking at those benefits for a period of maybe 10 years, especially if you're in your retirement years. You're thinking, you know, the grandkids are coming up. I'm going to have a beach house for a while. We're going to do that for about 10 or 15 years. I can sell this thing. It's a good investment and I'm gone. The When you're looking at risk, when you're looking at storm surge or erosion risk of these other long-term uh, and unpredictable events, you're thinking, well, I can give, I could go 10 years without a hurricane. That's not completely unreasonable that that could happen. And that's how the calculation, I think, occurs. The frame of reference for buyers and the frame of reference for developers. And uh, damn it, Dan Martin's show, a couple shows back, uh, the Next Gen Waterfronts podcast, they talk about the economic time frame of reference for developers being right. five to seven years. They're thinking five to seven. Buyers are thinking maybe a decade. 
the scientists who work on hurricane prediction are looking at 100-year <laughs> risk analysis. And this is why, you know, I don't think it the probability discussion fits well with the decision-making that people are actually doing. They're thinking, hell, I'm going to be here. I'm going to buy this thing. And when I'm 60, when I'm 70, I'll sell it or give it to the kids. We'll you know, be fine. I'm going to be out of here. Uh, they aren't thinking about a 100-year flood or a, or a 500-year flood, like the 500-year rainfall that they had in flood in Houston. Nobody thinks on that scale. That's part of the problem that I think Ken Graham and the National Hurricane Center has is these risks are very difficult to sort of incorporate into your day-to-day thinking. Yeah, and and if you are a resident, someone who is is <laughs> your house is destroyed and uh, you know, you of course that would be a meaningful experience in your life. It would be a terrible experience in your life, and it could very well uh, prompt you to view that risk differently. That percentage becomes a different reality to you. Um, but what we're seeing in the economic transformation of the American shoreline is that I, we have. I'm, I'm sure the the population across the coast is going up, but the yeah. certainly in so many beach towns and beach communities dotting the hurricane area yep. are transforming uh, from full time residents to short term rental communities. Yep. And if you're treating it like a business, right, you can account for this. Yeah, you set a, you build it into your uh, your cost structure. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I think we are seeing uh, what continues to be a development boom in Florida yeah. and in areas where we know hurricanes are going to hit. Uh, and it's uh, this also, Peter, to not to bring up our good friends in Minnesota Key, but you know, it's one of the major, you know, when we went in there and helped build the funding plan for that project, uh, it did cost money. It raised everything up. And, yep. you know, this uh, managing a shoreline from a uh, accounting for it is going to cost money. And if you're putting it on the local people, which it, I believe it should be, at least in part. Yep, at least in uh, part. So that they're accounting for their own risk. Uh, as those costs go up, you're going to look for other ways to uh, pay for them. And if you know that you can make so, so much more money yeah. renting the place out. Yeah. Uh, accounting for that risk and having, you know, being able to pay for your flood insurance, uh, all in all, it's just, it's part of that business. Roll it in. Roll it in. You know, you might not want to be a full-time resident. That's you a good observation, man. I mean, that's, uh, you know, Gilbert Gall, who was the author, this guy's a two times Pulitzer Prize winner who was on uh, the Ship to Shore podcast with Bob Frump, what, last week, I think? A uh, couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago. Gilbert Gall's new book, The Geography of Risk, Epic Storms and Thing on the American Shoreline, it is, a show, it, is a, it is a book about exactly what you're talking about. Uh, the conversion of the American shoreline from low-cost worker. This was the cheap vacation back in the 40s and the 50s. You'd have a beach shack. He said, you know, he tells the story about how he used to rent this 400 square foot cinder block house in the summer as a kid go down and lifeguard and surf all summer and pay next to nothing with his buddies and sleep in a sleeping bag and they had no heat and they didn't care because they were having the time of their life to the McMansion age which is an Airbnb gig economy driven development pattern and you're right you can account for the risks in that economic model you can add it to the price of the rental every week you're making a boatload of money and you're building bigger stuff on the american shoreline so this is kind of that intersection of why it's important to understand real estate and the economy of the shoreline when you're talking about hurricanes and you're talking about risk and it's kind of what i gotta say it's an argument for why coast and loose today covers all of these things together because they're intimately connected uh, the development of this economy of, of, of day rentals is really changing communities all over the coast. And uh, in ways that are, it's questionable, right? I mean, it's questionable whether that's a good thing for us to do as a, as a society. Well, I'll tell you one thing. It's fascinating, and uh, we will cover it, and we're going to cover every aspect of it. And uh, I'm sure if Ken was on right now, he would say that... Uh, it benefits him to think about this broader scope because he's ultimately right. interested in the anthropology of the shoreline just as much as he's interested in the atmospherics of a hurricane. Yeah, right. Uh, the science only gets him so far. It's obviously extremely important, but understanding what the people are doing, what the economics are, how the how the shoreline's changing, uh, 
intimately connected to his ability to lead that agency. Right. And to and to fulfill the mandate he has, which, as you said, is to reduce uh, uh, loss of life, and loss property. of life and property. Uh, the other consequence of this and 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 uh, the gig economy and the continued development of the American shoreline in the face of clear risk is a story posted a couple of days ago on Coastal News Today. This is the headline of this story. Y'all go click it. Uh, it's under the federal tab. But the federal and local governments have poured $5 billion into buying out flood-prone homes, and the effort is only going to get more expensive. The amount of money that we're spending to compensate people for flood risk, and this is what Director Graham was talking about. He said, look, it's the surge, it's the water, it's the rain. This is where the real risks are. I mean, you're getting your house blown away at 155 miles an hour will definitely be a risk. But the breadth of the impact, it comes from the water, not from the wind. Those intense winds are pretty limited in area. Uh, and if it lines up on you like it did on Mexico Beach and Hurricane Michael last year, it blew the entire damn town off the map. But the storm surge there was plus 20 feet, too. So there's the wind and the rain. Anyway, the for us as a community of people in America and on the American shoreline, this cost of buying out flood-prone homes is going to get more expensive. It's what Gilbert Gall was talking about in his book, Uh, the geography of risk. It's what Ship to Shore has been about. Dan Martin is covering this topic from the developer angle on uh, next-gen waterfronts. I mean, there's a lot to know here. Um, But I I think the thing I want people to to get is, is is we can't sit on high and judge every coastal property owner and say, boy, y'all are stupid. That is the fault-based analysis kind of attitude that, well, it's you took the damn risk, screw you. The The fact of the matter is we all take this risks through the government programs that we pay for, and the risks that coastal property owners are taking are not unique. Come on, the Midwest flooding, fires, all of this stuff we are in the way of nature because we live on a dynamic damn planet and there isn't really any escape there really isn't no escape no escape (laughs) well peter uh it has been a lovely friday happy hour uh We is that is that too much of a downer? No, <laughs> this is Friday happy hour. There's no escape. Seems like we're trapped. No, no, you're like in a in a basement right. cell, you know, sort right. of stressed. Before we close out, <laughs> let let me address that. I think that there is a surrender that we all psychologically That's undertake good. to be life forms on this planet right. acceptance how about acceptance. that acceptance yeah, is acceptance. we all practice it was very buddha you know you got to yeah. practice acceptance you know we're gonna right and and i have to say that in my uh time as a professional in the coastal space the conversation has evolved tremendously yeah. from what i would say was a very like hard structure wall that draw a line this is the line that of of development and this is the line where nature will be to un, to a more uh realistic understanding yeah and, na- and naturalistic understanding of how to great manage point. that and great point uh, the shoreline is the place to look for this uh of course you can find it in missouri and uh, all anywhere on the planet you can find uh, the environment and humans interfacing all the time, but the shoreline, the American shoreline, is a really fascinating place as Americans to study how we are managing our environment, how we're managing climate change, yeah. where our priorities are, uh, how we weigh out risk versus, uh, yeah. pro- you know, m- the possibility of making money. Um, and you know, the other thing is when we we of course love to highlight these massive uh, infrastructure projects that are happening in New York and in Galveston, Houston, ship channel stuff. And, you know, you better believe that uh, the degree of planning and thought, the complexity that Ken and his team uh, that that Kelly Burks Copes and her team are dealing with yeah, the Corps is, of Engineers. I mean, they're looking at what's the population of Houston going to be in a hundred years. Like they're thinking about that. Yeah, they're yeah. thinking about growth and expansion and things that uh, you know. It's easy for us to sit here and we will continue to do it uh, with our microphones <laughs> and sit here and talk about yeah, it. Right? Yeah, talk about it and and s- notice the trends. But you know, there are people whose actual jobs it is to make decisions. Yeah, uh, and. And 
we they we think they're doing a good job. Like it's getting better. I want to pick that up. I think you're quite right. In the time that we've been uh, working on the coast, uh, it's starting to change. This this was noticed at the ASBPA conference by longtime attendees uh, a, a couple years back. That there's more discussion of living shoreline deals. There's less discussion of fortification, and the and the verboten word of retreat has been mentioned. There's now a conference dedicated to coastal retreat. We're starting to see that being taken seriously. So uh, this is important, and I think the Kelly Burks Copes interview. Uh, Kelly is leading. It's actually, Dr. Copes is she's a PhD. She heads up the coastal spine project with 120 people at the u.s army corps of engineers in galveston texas go back on aspn and listen to kelly and then go listen to jim blackburn on the mid-bay option but the, the, if i want to get into that what in, what struck me about the discussion we had with dr copes is that in the 30 billion dollar projected cost of protecting the city of houston and galveston uh from storm surge is the amount of money that's going into natural barriers uh number one they shifted to a beach dune system restoration strategy as opposed to a hard levy and that's going to cost money over time but they're like you know the best way we can do it is have big wide fat beaches that helps reduce storm surge risk and 160 i'm telling y'all this is true if you listen to the interview 160,000 acres of marsh and oyster reef restoration in the Galveston Bay, the upper Texas coast, as part of the strategy. They, they, they're moving beyond the thinking that generated the seawall from the 1900 hurricane that Pumps, hit Galveston. reservoirs, levees, dikes. I mean, I guess there's still a potential wall in there. Sure, yeah, there is. I, I mean, it, it's a mixed... It, it's, it's mixed. It's, it's it, it changed. The pendulum has not swung all the way to the other side. Uh, no. But I, it's, it's somewhere... It's moving toward the middle... And the idea that, uh, and here's another, uh, 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 while it's on my mind, I'll share this thought yeah, too, ahead. you know, as uh, what Director Graham said is that the, the majority of the damage, the majority of the death, the majority of the problems here are the water, it's yeah. the rainfall, it's the drainage. And in these projects that we're following, these massive core projects, and in, by the way, the uh, an ancient, not ancient, but an older core project, which is the the spillway opening that uh, we talked about earlier. The Merganza, yeah. The Merganza spillway uh, opening. Uh, you know, these are uh, the drainages, the way that we were talking with the guy at the Chesapeake, the water, you know, th these things are so dynamic. I think we're going to see a lot more planning on how we're managing drainages, using natural systems to filter water, to slow it down. If you're talking about uh, trying to drain out the Houston area, using oyster reefs and marshes to slow that water you bet. so that it doesn't come barreling into the barrier island system on the back end. Right. That's smart planning. That's really smart planning. And it's good for the environment. It's good for yeah. fishermen and, and recreators out there. It creates a natural space. Uh, in the uh, environmental services, they call it, of the natural system is, is being talked about more. So there is advancement occurring and, and and on drainage and flooding i mean we all know hurricane ike and harvey in houston but harvey especially 45 inches of rain in a matter of what 36 hours 48 hours stunning flooded the whole damn city uh we interviewed Andrew Weber from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who's the project manager for the Buffalo Bayou and Tributaries Resiliency Study. This was back in, in April. Uh, look up Andrew Weber's uh, interview on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. It was in late April. Andrew Weber. But he's responsible for that drainage issue that you're talking about. And, of course, there's structures involved in that. But there is also this water retention strategy of natural systems that they're working on. And yeah. kind of what I'm seeing is, you know, the world is forcing us to think differently. You cannot build a Galveston seawall in every community on the American coast. It doesn't make sense. And there's downsides that are substantial. Uh, your father recognizes when he talks about the vetiver grass, and he did talk about this specifically. He said, you know, I could have done some sort of wall and engineered deal, but it doesn't really, it, sure, it'll protect the upland, but it's got some downside, and I'm going with the grass idea, and uh, because it's a different balance of uh, risk that he's, he wants the aesthetics, plus he wants to work with the system and that kind of deal. We're starting to see that more and more because I think, 
uh, as much as we wish, uh, this time we can just build wherever the hell we want. There are substantial costs, and working with the natural system is got significant advantages on a number of levels, and we're starting to see that happening. All those engineers are taking out their biology books and trying to figure out what the hell is Spartina. <laughs> it's not just graphs anymore. They got to think about graphs and elevations and water exchange and all of that and why that matters. Yeah, it's uh, nobody ever said it was going to be simple. This stuff is so complex. It's so interesting. Um, well, Peter. I'd say this was a good happy hour. Yeah, it's a pretty good happy. I mean, we're, it's Friday. We're trying to be upbeat about this. I'm just saying that it's okay to to look at some of the progress that's been made. And, and there really is a difference in thinking on the American shoreland that I think is encouraging to see. But I'll say this is one thing. We know that structures and, and engineering matters, and it matters most in, in urban areas, like the city of Houston with the petrochemical yeah. complex, like San Francisco, the port of San Francisco, and Miami, the city of New York, Miami, Tampa. And you see the Corps of Engineers putting tremendous uh, effort into the design of structures in urban areas. It's going to be interesting to see how we respond in rural parts of the American shoreline. Anyway... Uh, look, I think uh, there's a ton of stories about everything we're talking about on Coastal News today uh, under the property tab and under the federal tab and under the waterways tab. I mean, y'all, uh, sign up for uh, Coastal News today, subscribe to the publication, and become a listener of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. As they say, Tyler, what, rate and review the show? Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, right, and and I noticed I was checking our Apple Podcast feed last night. Uh, we have 17 reviews. We have 4.7 stars. Uh, I thought we did okay. I want 100 reviews. Come on, y'all, go review the damn podcast. We really are working hard at doing this. We the feedback matters a great deal. So jump Huge. in, right? How, where do you do that? How do you rate review? Tyler? Well, you know, go into your. Uh, your Apple Podcast tab there on your iPhone and do a search for the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, you'll find us. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. Right. And then you can just go and select the star all the way on the far right-hand side, and that'll give us a five-star review. Or if you want to give us less, uh, by all means, free choice. But uh, we would really certainly appreciate it. And if you've listened to some shows, you have some feedback, give us a... Give us a note, and uh, we do read that stuff, and it really helps us in it our does. podcast uh, rankings, uh, spreading the word out in, uh, you know, the techno world. And let's add this to the end of the equation. Hurricane season stops starts tomorrow. We're hoping everybody comes through the hurricane season well. Best wishes to everybody on the American shoreline as we jump through this next hoop. All right, Peter. It's always great to have a nice Friday happy hour on a beautiful Friday. Uh, wishing all of our listeners a wonderful day and a nice weekend. 